1: Hi, this is the uh, Mind Rolling Podcast, and uh, I'm David Silver. And I'm Ragu Marcus. And we're going to be rolling out for a few minutes about, you know, stuff from our past and from your present, I think, and, and see what comes and, out. And Roll our it out. Future. You know. Future too, yes.
0: We still yeah. have a future, don't we? I mean, we yeah. have
1: a few a few yeah. years.
0: Yeah. A few years, okay. Yeah. Well, well, better spend. I'm already depressed now. I can't yeah. do the podcast. <laughs> we might not make <laughs> it through right, the well.
1: podcast, actually.
0: <laughs> All right, oh, well, let's yeah. not be too alter-cuckerish there. <laughs> yeah, no, um,
1: no, no, we're young at heart, tremendously. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, you know, we kind of left off with uh, around uh, Leary Alpert and described how uh, Richard Alpert transformed to, to Ram Dass and had the courage to go off and really try and find that map, so, of consciousness, um, but uh, you, you had a, a little experience with, uh, with Leary and that uh, led to something else, which is kind of a fantastical story.
1: Yeah, right? I mean, I'm, I was living, I'd already moved to uh, Cambridge, Mass, and sometime, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was 67, uh, Timothy Leary uh, was involved in a debate with a guy who was head of the Tufts dental school, who was a real conservative dude and wanted to have a public debate about the immorality of suggesting that people should take psychedelics. So I was actually teaching at Tufts. And so I thought, Oh, I'll go and just support Leary. You know, it was an amazing lecture to buy any, I know the word amazing is overused, but it was just a, a, a rich, funny tapestry of his experiences and gave me an insight into what this psychedelic thing was all about. Of course, until you took LSD. You really had no idea. But if there was one person who could make it seem like it would definitely transform you, it was Leary. Um, So that was that. I hung out later like a groupie just to meet him, you know. There were about 10 of us. We went to some place in Harvard Square and hung out, and he was very affable. He was beautifully dressed. He was wearing a a grey Prince of Wales check suit with a, a vest and a black tie, and his hair was well-kempt, and he looked amazing, actually. Just very impressive individual, the most charismatic person I'd ever met at, to that point. But he was lovely and friendly, if, you know, very opinionated, to say the least. And that was it. I didn't really meet him again until the 80s, and he was living in Beverly Hills, and he had these parties. And by some strange chance, I got inv- invited to one of them. And there were parties involving you know, some remnants of the 60s. And they were all in the kitchen. And they were all guys with gray beards. That's what I remember. Mm. And then the rest of it was pure sort of a Hollywood, you know, frippery. And Tim was seemed to be in that world. He loved to be schmoozed over. He loved living in Beverly Hills. So I thought, well, he's nice and everything. But there wasn't anything to be gained from that. I eventually had an argument with someone at the party and left kind of in a huff. Mm. Um, the next time I met him was, again, Through media sometimes, if you were involved in media, you got to do such wonderful things. And in the late 90s, uh, I was asked to do an album and a film about Timothy Leary in his final times. Mm. And if you remember, Tim made a big deal of his death. He said it was the last taboo. The first was was drugs, the second was sex, the third was death. And in his typical immodest way, he was the leader of the I Will Enjoy My Dying movement. Mm. So we made a film with him. And he was a changed man. He was very sick. And, um, but that didn't that in any way curtail his vivaciousness and humor and sarcastic sense of humor, you know. But we talked a lot and filmed it about dying and how he felt that the way to die was with dignity and joy. And it's weird because, of course, Ramdas, his ex-partner uh, Alpert, had done amazing work, significant work, about death and dying and working with hospices, and so forth, for many years. So both of them, at this point, were focusing upon the transition. And Timothy, even though he could never be considered a truly spiritual person, in fact, he was rather mocking about all of that, did have very strong opinions about how to liberate yourself from being attached to the things of this life during, when you know that you've only got a limited amount of time left. When we finished the interview, he asked me how old I was. And I said, I was 51. And he said, Okay, you make it. After fifty, be serious about this. Don't be frivolous with your life. Mm-hmm. Spend some time thinking about how you're going to approach and meet that most important of all transitions. That's Very beautiful spiritual. thing for me. It was moving Timothy, had come full circle. Mm. And I'm sure like Ramdas will tell stories about how charming and kind hearted he could be. Mm. You know, so it had an well, enormous effect on my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and of course uh Ramdas went to see Leary before he died, and spent time with him. It was before Ramdas's stroke, actually. And um, actually, there's a new movie coming out. I mean, which you'll be interested in, Leary and Alpert, uh, next year, I believe. Uh, that looks. Uh, I've seen some of the footage. it Looks really great. So that but, leads uh, me, Raghu, to ask you. I've got to ask you. So I was somehow got
1: somewhat peripherally involved with Leary, but. In that same little window of time at the end of the 60s how did you cross paths with 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 Ramdas really what happened
0: I have to ask you a question first though then No problem I just have to It's actually not a question but it's it's wanting some more information because when you were doing that film when Leary was dying okay you called me one day oh and said I I think I needed to talk to you because it it was the time when we were you know we were at Mercury Records yeah we were making records so we had lots of stuff to talk about all the time and I needed something from you and didn't hear from you unusual you called me back within thirty seconds and then the next day you said Jesus I'm really sorry that I didn't get back to you but I was with one of uh, Leary's sons Jack I'm I'm not sure who it was Zach Zach? it was was Zach Zach. yeah it was Zach (laughs) Who we love, uh, yeah. And you said, "Well, Zach made me smoke this substance. Was it smoke or no? It it was ingested, ingested, it was and ingesting. Um,
1: if you take out the s t and put in the c t. Oh,
0: really? Yeah. Well, you. I uh,
1: promised my girlfriend I would not talk about this. Oh, okay. god! But uh, now I will. Anyhow, all I remember when she's listening,
0: yeah, all I remember is that you disappeared. You told me, literally, for X amount of time, (laughs) Mm. and had no expectation of this. And uh, did you you gave Zach a a bit of a talking to after that experience?
1: No, what happened was what happened. Timothy, Zach's father, had died. About I don't know a month or something. I'd gone back to New York. Actually, I missed being with him at that moment. But he died, and Zach asked me if I would participate in a ceremony on Timothy's bed in his bedroom. And I said yes for that, thing. And so it was like two days' notice, and I went there, and I said, okay, what are we, what are we going to do? Pray, meditate? He said, no, no, I, I want to do ketamine, special K with you. Oh. And I said, well, no. I, 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 no. He said, why not? You did all those things. I said, no, I know, but I was young and... crazy and he said no I want to do it and I want us to focus on my father and you know I asked you because you've been working with him for three months so he did it and uh, despite all the I hadn't done any of those things or anything remotely like that for since 1973 so it it was you know whatever it was 27 years that's why yeah and we did it. A little and, out of
0: shape on that one.
1: I just not, I mean, I wouldn't, so I was completely petrified about this and I had every good reason to be because a moment, and he said, Zach said to me, by the way, you are going to lose a sense of who you are. And if, oh, I said, I know about that, getting rid of the ego, the self, whatever. I've been meditating for a hundred years. <laughs> he said, well, this could be, so anyway, we did it. And I, within seconds, I'd lost all my ground and had no idea where I was, who I was, what I was doing or anything. It was complete dislocation from all, all reality. There was no guru, by the way, either. It wasn't like I reached out for Maharaji or anyone. I didn't know to reach out. I didn't know words, for instance. And it was so terrifying that I could spout the word help. <laughs> and, and and Zach said, I knew it was going to happen. So take your boots off and, and let's go outside to the garden. And Tim Leary had a, a garden at the back of his house with the names of the four most famous Los Angeles Lakers. Oh. Uh, so he had... You know, Kareem, Magic. Jerry West. I don't remember the other two. It was pre Kobe, uh-huh. And and Zach said, rest your back against, against Kareem. Because he asked me which was one of them I liked the most. <laughs> so I sat in the Kareem tree. Right. And he took my boots off and he said, just relax. You know, whatever. It was weird. It was like his father all over again. And um, very soon, I still didn't know who I was or what was going on. But I started to see these... Um, and this is not characteristic of me, I'm not, this is not characteristic of me, or Ragu, I don't think, I started to see these globules that were like snow cones. <laughs> and, the, and there were many of them. There were hundreds uh-huh. of them. And each of them was, when I looked more carefully, was a lotus. And on each of these lotuses sat, uh, but not in a photograph, moving. Not moving much, but clearly alive. A bodhisattva, uh, you know, one of the great... No, uh, tantric no. or one well, of the great tulkus, or Milarepa, I didn't know who they were but I knew they were all exact Tibetan or Buddhist deities and The one reason they were playing around I got this overwhelming beautiful feeling of great, not love but finally I saw something which irrevocably told me that this is just one set of dimensions in a million and that if you reach out with love and with, I don't know I don't know liberation, freedom or something, just feeling, letting go. They'll come, you'll find them, you know, but up to that point it hadn't happened. And it lasted about, um, I wish, I mean, you shouldn't have asked me this because this is a huge thing. It lasted about 45 minutes. And by the end of it, uh, Zach said to me, he spoke to me during it. He said, so do you feel all right? Can you drive back? And I said, yes, I can. And I drove back easily and um, was completely grounded. Mm-hmm. There was no trace of anything. But the experience was what I have to call an article of faith. Never since that time, and it's now 13 years ago, have I doubted that we live within a loving atmosphere of great masters. And that they're there. They're here. They're in our hearts. Before then, it never was quite, even with all the blessedness of receiving some form of darshan from from Maharaji and other great, great, great saints, Um that was a moment when that happened to me, all those years later.
0: Hmm. And even now... Well, if I remember it as being something outstanding, but uh, you're talking about, this happened soon after Leary's death, right? About three weeks after. Right, so it's, uh, you know, then it's um, 20-odd years ago. It was um, 1998, I guess. Right, yeah, eight, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I
1: was working with with Leary and Ginsburg. and both of them passed right. yeah. while I was working mm. with them. Yeah, and that was such a beautiful time of my life. My God.
0: Mm. Well, so uh, moving backwards from there, um, yeah. you were asking me about um, meeting up with Ramdas. How I did meet him. Yeah. Now that's all well documented in Ramdas Here and Now podcasts, which I do with Ramdas over on ramdas.org but uh, so I won't I won't it except to say that I got a dream job program director of a very powerful free form rock and roll radio station in Montreal Quebec and um, was having a time of my life Mm -hmm. at that time and um, because music was just everything and um, so one day, I get a call, help promote Ramdas. So that was my first hearing the name. I mean, I'd never heard it before. how you heard of Alpert? Alpert and Leary, as I told you, yeah. were like guru, teacher, whatever. They were, you know. Right. I owed everything to them, as far as I was concerned. So that that obviously gave me the thing to go and and find out. Well, immediately I I had a tape sent over. I listened to the tape of a previous lecture of his, and that was it. I mean, I was completely happy to uh, actually now have some idea of what was going on, these feelings that I had, the experiences I had through psychedelics, for the most part, um, and and a a little bit of music, as I said before. Um, There was some way of understanding there was some way of understanding the whole reality of, of you know, what we're, this planet we're living on, this um, reason to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I immediately went and got with him. You know, I found him, I brought him to the station, and I interviewed him. And then I knew then that um, whoever he was talking about, and he gave me a picture of the guru. I was going to go find that guru. But even though he was saying that he had no idea where he was, which wasn't true. I mean, he knew where he was. He had no idea that he was going to let anybody know about it, really. So, but that was the environment. That, for me, literally was the turn of the decade, from the 60s to the 70s, was that experience. Uh, I met him, and then things got real... Um focused for me as to okay, that feels like I want that, and I'm going to go get it one way or the other, and the first way was you know hanging out with Ramda, so that's what was happening critically at that period, and you where were you at the turn of the decade um I was
1: involved in my so-called career too in the sense it's interesting too how you and I both met and, and came across really, really, you know, crucial figures via the media, you know, that we're lucky in that sense. Um, at 69, I was um, moved from Cambridge to New York City to do a, a television series, which was called The Great American Dream Machine, uh, which I invented, and it was about America as it is right now, so I was v- totally invested in it. Um, but within, we did about 15 shows, I think, and it was an extremely uncomfortable thing for me to be doing. Because it was kind of a thing where I went backwards because the people I was working with weren't the kind of people I'd worked with in Cambridge. They were professional television producers and segment producers and so on. And I was uncomfortable the whole time. We did quite a few shows. I was not happy. So I was wondering what to do with my life, actually. I just, I didn't know. And um, it's later, you know, um, in the 70s, when I left America and went to... Morocco and, and had a, an experience of a mystical, deeply mystical kind, a beautiful experience. It stays with me still in every detail. Uh, but it wasn't as if there were lots of people going there. There was just five people. And it, they were doing a piece for National Geographic about the master musicians of Jajouka. Zizuka. Ziazouka is a, a tiny village in the foothills of the Reef Mountains in northern Morocco. And it's a place which was a healing place, particularly for mentally ill people, which is probably why I was there. Mm. <laughs> and I was fantastic. I went there three or four times and did the first filming ever there and filmed these amazing musicians and, and dancers and uh, chanters and trance makers and healers. Um, so The Stones ended up with... The Stones you know. went there quite a bit before I did. Brian Jones made a record there. And it was from that record that somebody said that we should investigate this for Geographic. And they asked me to film it, but there was no filming allowed in that particular Sufi community. But having lived there a couple of months, eventually they said, go ahead. So I have this precious footage of Mm. these amazing masters. Um, But that was my version of it. And it's so fascinating to me that, you know, you went to India and then a whole, eventually a bunch of people went to India. And out of that came a huge change for lots of people. You know, not just the people who went to India, but people who heard about the people who went to India and all of that. Mm. Whereas I just was somewhere else. It wasn't supposed to be that. It sounds very hippy-dippy, but I firmly believe that you are in the place that you have graduated to for whatever karmic reasons, and you ain't going nowhere else but that. It's sort of like inexorable. Then what you do with that may lead you into something else. But
0: Well, you know, ultimately, though, if we just, as a marking point, so for me... I did go to India at the end of 1970, trying to find Neem Karoli Baba through Ramdas, who had gone there, and some other folks had gone there as well. Because he eventually did give up some little bit of an address. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) talk tell people about how it was. You know, he was not about to sort of screaming from the rooftops about.
0: Who Ramdas? Yeah,
1: about this astonishing. Well, he
0: was told not to say a word. Yeah, talk about that. When he was in India and he was with his guru, who we call Maharaji, um, which means great king, in in Hindi, um, everybody, the sweeper, Maharaj, what's (laughs) up? You know, so everybody's called that. I mean, Maharaji is, of course, honorific. Um, so he. Didn't listen to that edict. Now, did he? Because he came back. All he did was talk about <laughs> Maharaji. Uh, you know. So of course that was all known to you know. It was all and said, um, "I give you my blessings for your book." He didn't have a book in mind. Actually, the book he had he he did have a travelogue in mind, and he started to write that. And he went, no, this isn't, no, this is crazy bullshit, and he threw it out. Really? He was writing a travel? No, yeah. we, I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And he thought that's what he meant. <laughs> Eventually, but of course, you know, out of the lectures and all the talks he gave, which one of them I heard, and uh, how I contacted him in Montreal. So, but a marker for that time was the introduction to a being like Neem Karoli Baba, for me, that showed us just like we had had these marking posts all along if for music it was dylan just even saying okay there's you know i hear you and i can voice what you're feeling you know all the way through other music transcendental music that led you into a spiritual center and the understanding of that and of course the psychedelics and of course introductions to to eastern stuff um but uh Neem Karoli Baba represents, you know, at one level, I mean, we can't say anything about what it really is, there no words can say that, but certainly the human potential of just love, compassion, just those simple things, we just start there. You yourself bumped into that, I, and I don't know the timing, but you, you should tell us, because into a, a being that was no different than Neem Karoli Baba, whose name is Shirdi Sai Baba. And mm. if you read different accounts of the two of them, mm. uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, oh my God, it's just the same kind of a thing. So, yeah, talk about that for a second. Well,
1: you know, Nirmkareli uh, was, uh, this is before his Mahasamadhi when you m- met him.
0: Uh, Fortunately.
1: T- yes. Uh, Sai Baba Shirdi died in 1918. And the only reason I knew about him was that I went to this great teacher in New York called Hilda Charlton, who you also obviously went to, and Hilda um, Ramdas was in that class, just as a person listening and chanting, which was new to me. And in the course of her amazing Thursday night classes, she would just, and she had displayed as in sort of a gigantic puja in front of her, all the masters that she uh, felt connected to, which went to people like St. Germain and Jesus and so on like that, but for me, most interestingly, was the self-realization, fellowship, lineage, Yogananda, Yogtiswar, so on, and uh, Maharaji, Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, and then the, the two Saibhavas, Satya Saibhava, who was still on the planet at that time, and Shirdi Saibhava. I had no, the, what, I, I mean, I've got to be totally accurate here. None of them really meant anything to me except Shirdi from the the get-go. The others I learned quickly, and Maharaji eventually was much more vivid for me because of my friendship with you and all the others. But Shirdi jumped out at me like it was ridiculous. I just couldn't get him out of my mind, and even now if I just unbutton my shirt here, I have a pendant of Shirdi, I have thousands of photographs of him, and so on. That's the way it was for me. This person who, being that died in India, you know, all those years ago, was alive to me then and still is and that was through hilda uh, then i found out to my absolute delight that uh maharaji nimkaly baba was you know liked shirdi because that would have been a real problem for me mm. if if i'd have found out that later that this this being oh, it didn't for some reason didn't rate uh shirdi did and um, so that was my first really powerful association in any way with um for real you know Meher baba was incredible but it was just really reading books and 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 little movies and stuff sure it was not books not movies not pictures it was something else it was an infusion into my bloodstream the uh the uh, sort of the the, the, the the teaching persona of this being i never met and i could feel what he would have thought about any given situation at any time that was what i was like it's like would he what would you say to me doing this right now? And sometimes I was so powerful, I would stop what I was doing.
0: Now, this is obviously a very, uh, very important topic that, I'm not sure if we're, um, is it too radical to think that there are beings who really can, that are beyond time and space and obviously can interact with uh humans, uh, so is that too radical uh, an idea? Be. I mean, y- you know, uh, we, both of us have had the experience because all, yeah. uh, although we did see Neem Baba in the flesh, you know, and had those experiences.
1: But you said to me recently, Ragu, that the difference between a sort of wish fulfillment thing where you want something and you get it somehow, there's a difference when it's all experiential that one is not talking to people about something that you sort of abstractly knew about or even feel good about, but you actually had an experience with, and then you tell that experience. And if it's out of time and space, so be it. Either they believe you're crazed, or they'll take a liar, which they have every right to believe, maybe. But if they know you in any way, shape, or form, and trust everything else you say, sort of, believe you're honest, believe you're not living in some cloud-cuckoo land of delusion, then... There seems to be a real good. There's a good uh, conduit for bringing this up, and it doesn't become too radical because people scratch their chins or whatever and go, "Wow, you really, you really experienced that." Yeah. Well, you you know, so it's experiential.
0: Yeah, I'm going to bring Duncan back in. Yeah. Gee, Duncan, I wish you were with us. Yeah. Um, but Duncan, the only reason he got in touch with me was because he found something that rang true with him when he heard Ramdas, And then he found Neem Karoli Baba. And when I went to do this little podcast with him, you know, I go into his place and he's, you know, it was a brand new house he had just moved into. And there was a huge photo of, you know, a beautiful big picture of Neem Karoli Baba. And I was like at home mm-hmm. and he was just there. And so he, and and the way, it was beyond words. That's why he kept asking me for well, what are what are some of the definitions of this stuff? What's going on here? You know, and uh, so it was really uh, it's total living proof that that is as real as anything is as you know as uh, the nose on on the end of your face. Yeah. So, um, but let's not diverge too much there. We're jumping
1: ahead of ourselves yeah, if we're going like to be like way ahead. Although of the
0: point here was mm-hmm. that. We both ran into, in the early 70s, you know, at the turn of the decade, these two beings that were major, major um, turning point of one's life, I mean, complete turning point, and you start to realize something way huger than what, you know, you were you were into before, you know, that, that small little I started to get way larger. Now, with some people, maybe not in such a good way, and they took advantage of that, and so on, but... Um, I know, uh, you know, these were, I mean, I ended up a year and a half in India at that time, in the early 70s, and just that alone, living in that place for that long and becoming part of that fabric, you know, that that uh, was just not exchangeable to any other, th- I couldn't th- possibly think, you know, of what, so, you know, transformational, obviously, at that time, and we talked about that, but... Uh, in terms of where were you in those days, in the early 70s? What what was happening to you? I I think you were were creating family, right?
1: Yeah, um, well, I had one daughter, but I didn't have the other one until the mid-70s, my wife and I. Uh, But in the early 70s, um, I was involved with experimental video and, and ran something called the TV Lab for the Rockefeller Foundation in New York, which was to try and change... Television from just a purely mass medium into at least an installation or experimental art medium. So I worked with Nam Jim Paik and Bill Viola and hmm. some incredible people, and I, I, I ran that. It was called the TV Lab in, in New York, and it was opposite the UN on 46. So I invested a lot of my energy into this art work, hmm. and it was a bit of a losing battle because we didn't have the equipment that, that sort of jived with our visions. Because at that time, there were any big cameras. There were no little cameras, let alone iPhones. And so it was a difficult process. But we did it, I did it for five years. Uh, mm. But then again, the cycle, I became quite dissatisfied with the installation art world and the video art world. It was very sort of heartless. I don't mean cruel. It just didn't, have, didn't seem to have, want to have feeling. It wanted to be beyond feeling. So it had a mm. slightly zen feeling about it. Yoko Ono and Shigeku were friends, and those two women were very, part, very much a part of the way this was at that time. Um, and I had to scramble out of that, and that's when I got into, back into music and away from, uh, you know, television. Television is too constricting to do anything particularly interesting, you know. It still is in some ways. Hmm, you yeah, know. No. But so that was my life in the early 70s. I was really, hmm. But of course, I was going to hell this once a week on a Thursday night, and singing uh, what I later learned, you know, it's kirtan. And she used to do specifically a lot of Sri Ram and did a lot of Hare Krishna and a lot of Yogananda stuff, which she generally would just sing, and we'd listen, you know. And mm. there were quite a few people there. And that's where I met uh, um, Ram in and Krishnadas yourself, a little later, but, you know, it wasn't in the early 70s. What's 73? it? 73. 73, yeah. And then I myself, then just to go on, I, mean, I spent a lot of time with Native Americans because I was very mm. drawn to that tradition, and found myself spending months at a time learning some of the um, rituals involving their mm. the Native American Church, which was founded in 1921 to enable Native Americans to take peyote without yeah. being arrested. Right, I so, became a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: here we were transitioning from teenagers. To our early twenties, um, into the mid twenties, late, you know, twenty three, four, five, because those are that was the time that I was in India, and you were doing this, uh, you know, this work, this TV work at yeah. that time. But you, you know, here we were. We both had established, though, that there was that something else for us to be able to look inside, and and know. I mean, you knew. TV is not my life at that at that time obviously because of these relationships. In my case, um I was completely gone because I wasn't working. I was just chasing Maharaji around India for a year and a half basically and being with him as much as I could and just grabbing as I mean we were the level of attachment which we had to live it took 10 12 years for many of us to even get through. Can you detail that a bit, like in
1: terms of going and coming, and how long you would stay when you were there and that, like that? Well, it was... the best uh, of your memory.
0: Yeah, it could be he would stay in one place for um, a month, even. So we would stay in one place, then he'd leave and go in another place. But you know what? That's going to be for a different podcast, that whole thing. Um, But I do, you know, the fact that we absolutely... um, came to a place in the early 70s after going through some pretty horrendous stuff either personally or dealing with family dealing with society dealing with work you know dealing with who am i um and i think we were very fortunate to come out the other end Mm. in the early 70s you know one way or another um that uh well i look at what's going on today and i look at people you know, young people, especially who really want to get that rudder. we were given we were given the boat, the oar, the rudder, and the whole damn thing. So you know, yeah, yeah. Um, very fortunate. Um, so mind rolling rolls on.